Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. As we read our Bible passage for our Bible study. Sunday morning studying the book of 1 Corinthians together. A series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to the men that are bringing Bibles up the aisle right now and they'll get one into your hands and then you can read the Word of God as well as listen to it today so that it can be as fully profitable as God wants it to be in your life. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, the Word of the Lord. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example to the the intent that we should not lust lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled and thankful to be able to turn to your word this morning. To know that every time we open this book, we are reading something and learning from a book, from your word that's going to outlive not only our trials and our circumstances, but all of the heavens and all of the earth. And thank you, Lord, that we need never turn to this book alone, but always in fellowship with you and your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that you, from your heart, that you would speak to each one of us individually and personally this morning from this passage. We know that you never waste your breath You never talk just to be talking. Everything that you say has meaning and purpose. 
And so we pray that you would help us to understand your meaning and your purpose, not for the whole world or everybody else, but for us individually from this passage in your word. Thank you, Father, for this living word. Speak to us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this section of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he is answering questions that have been posed to him by uh, members of the church there. And he began by addressing uh, questions concerning the subject of marriage and singleness. And then he moved on to address a question having to do with the appropriateness of a Christian eating meat that had been offered in a pagan sacrifice. And Paul answered uh, the question, but then he enlarged his instruction to include the larger principle of how we as Christians are to view our Christian liberties and how we are to exercise our Christian liberties. And Christian liberties refer to those things that a Christian is perfectly free to engage in if they choose to. Uh, there are things in life which, for which there is no thou shalt or no thou shalt not. Uh, God is silent related to those issues or um, has given liberty related to those issues and they can engage in them as they see fit and based upon their own personal convictions about those issues and those subjects. The Apostle Paul, though, in speaking about this, gave four examples of situations in which he would personally always lay aside his Christian liberty uh, for the sake of, where he would voluntarily lay aside his right. He doesn't come in and say, you can't do this, because Paul would never say that related to a liberty or a right. Otherwise, he'd move it from the liberty category. So he just comes in and he explains these four examples of situations where he would always volunteer to lay aside his liberties as necessary. First, for the sake of the spiritual welfare of another Christian. He felt that if the exercising of a liberty legitimately stumbled a fellow believer, then he would lay that liberty aside. It was never worth that, never worth stumbling another Christian in their relationship with the Lord. He wrote in chapter 8, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Second, he would lay aside any liberty that would even remotely harm harm the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of his ministry, of what God had called him to be and in order to make an influence for God in the world. And hearing that well done from the lips of Jesus one day meant more to him than uh, ever the exercise of any liberty would mean to him. And third, Paul gave up every right and liberty that he had if he felt that the exercising of that liberty would even remotely create an obstacle to an unsaved person 
to listening to him share the gospel with them and then putting their faith in Jesus for salvation. He was a man who valued the souls of human beings, their eternities, more highly than his own rights. He said, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And fourth, he was willing to forego any liberty necessary so as to avoid becoming a castaway, becoming disqualified concerning God's call upon his life. And we saw that last week in uh, chapter 9, verse 27. And the key to not becoming a castaway or becoming disqualified in his Christian service and in his Christian witness was, he told us in that verse, disciplining my body and bringing it into subjection. We saw last week how that no one is running to win whose supreme concern in life is the demanding and the exercising of every liberty that they have. That's true in the physical realm, in a physical race, concerning every athlete you'll see in the Winter Olympics that are currently being televised from Russia. But it is also true in the spiritual realm concerning our spiritual race. And now Paul goes on to instruct us that it is not just the abuse of and the undisciplined exercise of liberties that can turn us into a castaway, but a failure to be disciplined regarding sin can disqualify us as well. And as he does so, he gives us a little bit of a history lesson from the Old Testament in order to make this single great point. And the point that he's wanting to make to these Corinthian Christians and to us as Christians here this morning is this, that though the Old Testament saints, the children of Israel, though they all possessed marvelous blessings and privileges that with most of them the Lord was not well pleased. Verse 5. That word all is repeated five times in those opening verses. All, 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 all. Everyone in that generation of God's people numbering two to three million people at that time coming out of the bondage of Egypt, every single one of them had a uniform experience with God in a history with God. And yet for all of them experiencing all of those things, most of them, with most of them, the Lord was not well pleased. Verse 5. They were his children, absolutely, but with most of them he was not well pleased. How many of you know you can have children They'll never cease to be your children, but you can be not well pleased with them because of choices that they have happened to be making. And the same thing is true of God's children in the New Testament, of Christians. All Christians are Christians, but it's possible that with most of them he may not be well pleased. 
This is certainly true of the church at Corinth. Were they saved, these Christians? Were they on their way to heaven? Absolutely saved and on their way to heaven. Thanks to the fact that salvation is a free gift and not based upon works. But in terms of living a life that really pleases God, no, by and large, they weren't doing that. And you know, that might just be true of most Christians in any age. I don't know, but I don't doubt it. But I do know that it will certainly be true of the time immediately prior to Jesus' return, the rapture of the church. Because the Bible teaches that the church of Philadelphia is going to be one of those end times churches in the book of Revelation, faithful to God, hardworking, faithful to God's word. They're going to be small in stature. While the church at Laodicea materialistic and man-centered rather than God-centered and so man-focused to the neglect of God that Jesus stands on the outside of the church knocking, endeavoring to be allowed in, and nobody in the church understands that there's anything wrong with that. It's lost to them that Christianity is about Christ, that it's about Him. Well, Paul begins in verses 1 through 5 by reminding us of the tremendous privileges, the marvelous privileges that the children of Israel enjoyed and really that we enjoy in even greater measure as New Testament saints. He said in verse 1 concerning those Old Testament saints, he said, first, all were under the cloud. And this speaks of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that accompanied them uh, day and night following their exodus from Egypt uh, uh, on their journey ultimately to the promised land. And God had a cloud that he would use by which during the day when that cloud moved, it represented the presence of God and the will of God. And when that cloud moved, they would then move their camp. When that cloud stayed still, they stayed encamped where they were. And the same thing was true of the pillar of fire by night. If it moved, they moved. If it didn't move, then they didn't move. And that cloud supplied them with supernatural guidance and supernatural protection. It was just a constant reminder to them of the fact that God was with them. What a fabulous experience the children of Israel had. God being so personal, so daily, so um, right there in terms of communicating his will and his purposes to them. Of course, for us as Christians, we don't in terms of God's protection and his guidance, it isn't by a pillar of fire that is some distance from a camp of two to three million or just a means by which God led two to three million people all at the same time. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And how many millions and hundreds of millions of Christians are there all around the world? And he leads us individually and personally by the Holy Spirit who has come into our lives. The second privilege that Paul reminds them of is that they all passed 
through the sea. And this refers to God's miraculous parting of the Red Sea as a part of their exodus from the bondage uh, of Egypt. They all experienced that great experience. Imagine that as you read the account in the Scriptures They pass through the Red Sea. God makes a wall of water on either side. The only way you can get a feel for this is to go to uh, San Francisco Aquarium or go to the uh, aquarium over in Monterey, but they've got to use glass to do it. But there's all that water, and you're walking here, and water on both sides. You're on dry land. But God did that to an entire sea, just a sheer water on both sides, no glass. It's just there, God doing it, and you're walking through there on dry land. That's an experience that that generation got to experience. They did that. We read about it. They did it. It was a part of their history with God. Amazing, amazing history. And all of it's a picture for the Christian of the water baptism in the Christian life, where we publicly testify to the fact that we have left Egypt. That's over. That's through. And now we're heading off into something brand new that God has called us uh, into, and we've started a new life of living for God. The third privilege that Paul reminds us of in verse 2 is that all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, God had provided the children of Israel with his own appointed leadership in the person of Moses. And then he confirmed the fact that Moses was his choice to lead the children of Israel by virtue of the miracles that he performed through Moses. And here he references in in all of this, the cloud by day and by night, the parting of the Red Sea, miracles that God did through Moses. And of course, as Christians, we enjoy being led by an even greater than Moses. Think about being led by Moses. Moses! One of the five most important people in all of human history, whether you are a religious person or a secular person. One of the most dominant influences in human history. You got to see him every day. You got to watch him. You got to be led by him. He didn't make bad decisions. He was God's choice. How fabulous. And yet as Christians, God has called us to follow one who's far greater than Moses. We have the privilege of being able to be under the God-given leadership of Jesus himself and Jesus' leadership being openly confirmed by God the Father in the three greatest miracles in human history, and that is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And then fourth, the fourth privilege in verse 3 that Paul reminds us of is that they all ate the same spiritual food. And this refers to the manna that God supplied to the children of Israel almost immediately upon leaving Egypt, all the way to the moment that they began to step into the promised land, all the way through even the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God supplied them with that uh, heavenly uh, food. And of course, as Christians, through Jesus, God the Father has provided us with a spiritual food. He supplied by manna a physical food for the children of Israel. 
In Jesus, he's provided a spiritual food to satisfy a spiritual thirst inside of us, a spiritual hunger, rather. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, after they said to him, Our fathers ate manna in the desert, and it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And basically they're saying, Moses did some things, and so what can you do? Uh, Can you supply us with some food in that way? And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger. I can't speak for any other Christian, but I suspect I could. But I, when I became a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, my spiritual hunger was fully satisfied. I don't spend one moment of my life looking over my shoulder or wondering what's going on in this religion or in this philosophy or in Egypt or in the world. I'm so fully satisfied with the life spiritually that God has produced within me. I don't have a hunger for anything else. I don't even get the munchies for anything else. Why does that satisfaction come into our lives? Why do we feel that? Because he's the bread of life. He satisfies that hunger. And then the fifth privilege Paul reminds us of is that they all drank of the same spiritual drink in verse 4. And this refers to the time in their history when Moses struck the rock at a time when the children of Israel We're facing tremendous thirst out in the wilderness. God instructed Moses to strike the rock, and he would bring water forth from that rock. And Moses struck the rock, and the water came forth, and their water uh, and their thirst was satisfied. Their physical thirst was uh, satisfied. And all through their journey, God supplied them with the water that they needed. And all of it just a picture of a greater thing that we have as Christians that we have a source of spiritual water that is found in Jesus. He meets the, the spiritual thirst in our life, not just a physical thirst. And that thirst has been fully satisfied in the Lord Jesus. When Jesus spoke to that woman at the well in uh, Sychar there in John chapter 4, as it's recorded, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And that's our portion. We have discovered it to be true. Now, that's quite a history to have with God, isn't it? That's a lot of privileges. To have been through all of those things, to have seen God do all of those things, and each and every one of the children of Israel that came out of Egypt and that generation, they experienced every single one of those things 
at that time. Redeemed from Egypt, experienced the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, being led by Moses himself, being fed by manna, being supernaturally supplied with water. And yet, Paul tells us in verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And in The fact of the matter is that of the two to three million people that made up the children of Israel at that time, that of the number of them that were over the age of 20 at that time, only two of them, out of two to three million, only Two of them did not become castaways and disqualified and were able to enter into the promised land. And that was Joshua and that was Caleb. And when you think about all of the privileges and the incredible history that these men and women had with God, And you think to yourself, what in the world could cause that to happen? What in the world would cause an entire generation of God's people who had experienced all of that to end up disqualified, to end up castaways? And the answer is sin. Sin. And so Paul lists the sins that took them by the hand and then led them into a life of disqualification, the sins that can cause us to disqualify ourselves in the Christian life. And he lists those sins in verses 6 through 11, and he begins with the sin of lust in verse 6. Sometimes in the Bible, lust refers to sexual lust. We think of lust almost exclusively is referring to sexual lust in our culture, but that's not how it's used in the Bible. It includes that. But the word lust means a strong desire. He's not talking about sexual lust here. He'll talk about that in a moment. And so he refers to the lust that disqualified so many. And he tells us that their lives warn us of the danger of lust and a strong desire for what is outside of God's will for our lives. And the story is told in Numbers chapter 11, where they come out of Egypt. God supplies them with the manna. It's all that you could possibly need for good nutrition and, and to be taken care of and all. And they eat this manna day after day, and then finally they don't want this manna anymore. They don't want God's will. They don't want God's plan. They don't want God's provision. They want meat. I want meat. I want meat. You know, hear him. This manna, we despise this manna. We don't want this manna. I mean, I'm not exaggerating it. We don't want anything to do more with this manna anymore. We want meat. And Moses, while you're at it, you're the one that took us out of Egypt so we couldn't eat, eat meat anymore. And how about if you could supply us with some garlic and some leeks and some melons and some onions and all those spices that we don't taste in the uh, manna. And they elevated the lust of their flesh for food 
above God's plan and purposes for their lives, like many of the Christians in the church at Corinth did, where their God was their belly, who, like Esau in the Old Testament, threw his entire birthright away for a bowl of red, a bowl of stew, a bowl of chili. Through all, he threw his entire birthright before God away for one bowl of chili. Someone has observed concerning Esau that he was all kitchen and no chapel. And that was true of many in the church at Corinth and many Christians even today. The saint who is interested in running to win lives by a different motto than that. And the different motto is God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. God said, you don't want my will? You don't like my will? You want to rebel against me in this way? I'll give you meat. And quail came in like a storm that came in. And they began to knock these quail down to the ground and so desiring to fulfill the lusts of their flesh, so hating this manna and God's plan for their life, they began to even eat the quail without cooking it. And the Bible says that while the meat was still between their teeth, that the Lord struck them with a very great plague, and many died, and the place became known as Kibroth Hatava, which means the graves of lust. They all ran. But those who elevate their fleshly appetites above the will of God for their lives became castaways. He then mentions idolatry in verse 7, and this refers to the worship of the golden calf when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and the law from Moses. He was gone for 40 days, and the people began to say, we don't know whatever became of this Moses guy. And so Aaron said, well, give me all of the gold that you have, your earrings and these things that you brought out of the um, Egypt and all, and he fashioned a golden calf. And then he put the golden calf before the people, and the Bible says that the children of Israel began to worship before the golden calf. They were eating, they were drinking, they were dancing, and the whole idea in terms of the original language of of the dancing is that it was sensual, and then God judged them by the hand of the sons of Levi, and 3,000 men who refused to repent of this idolatry, they died as God removed that leaven from the camp among his people. Idolatry is very simply the worship of any created thing, anything that I would allow in my life, any material person, place, or thing that becomes now more important to me than God, becomes the master passion of my life other than God. That's an interesting point to make in a sermon. You say, oh, I think I'll just disregard that because that's just something they pay preachers to say. 
be careful. Idolatry is the worship of any created thing, making that the master passion of my life. And of course, the worship of material things makes a castaway of so many Christians today. And it's one of the great sins of our culture. I can't say that materialism is the sin of our culture, the great sin of our culture, because we are encouraging so much sin that it's like being at the fair where they're squirting those, the, the squirt guns and the horses are all, and there's ten of them all within a quarter inch of one another. But it is certainly one of the great sins that we face in the materialistic culture that we live in. Idolatry is an immense and unspeakable insult to God on the part of anyone. But doubly so, quadruply so, whatever so, related to the child of God. Here you have God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth with a word. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is the great, great God, worthy of all of our glory that we would give Him, all of the honor that we would give Him, all of the worship, all of the obedience. And then a person ignores God and all that He is in order to worship something of His creation. And then Paul speaks thirdly in verse 8 of the danger of sexual immorality. And in this he speaks of a time in Israel's history when the children of Israel, the men of the children of Israel committed harlotry with the women of Moab. And it resulted in 23,000 men being smitten by God dead for having committed that sin. And then number four in verse nine, There is the sin of tempting God or tempting Christ. And this refers to the incident involving the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21 where the people began to speak against God and the hardship of their lives in the wilderness. And they began to blame God for it. And they began to uh, speak in a disrespectful way related to him. And the reason that they were in the mess that they were in the middle of in the wilderness, the reason that they weren't in the promised land yet, the reason they hadn't made a beeline right from Egypt into the promised land was their own sin. It was their own doing. And here they are in the wilderness as a result of their own sin, not because of some failure on God's part, but now they're going to blame God for what was their responsibility. God then sent fiery serpents into the camp of the children of Israel, and they bit the people, and many of them died. And their pride and their arrogance there, I'm smarter than God, and if he doesn't do things my way, I'm going to take my ball and go home. It was just pure rebellion against God and his authority over their lives. And then fifth, he mentions 
that many were disqualified and made castaways because of complaining in verse 10. And this refers to the rebellion of Korah and others against God's choice of Moses to lead the people. All of it's recorded in Numbers chapter 16. It's a funny thing to read the Old Testament. We realize God is holy and we realize that a lot of things are important to him. But nobody can read the Old Testament without coming away deeply impacted at the fact that God does not like complaining and he takes it very, very personally. And we're not talking about when the world complains. We're talking about when God's people complain against him. And God took all of their murmuring and all of their complaining very personally and very, very seriously. And it's important to realize that the reason that God takes it personally is that all complaining in the life of a child of God is to complain against God, to complain against his power, against his wisdom, against his love, against his nature. It is a very bad reflection upon him, a unfair reflection against him. And God brought a great judgment upon Korah and all of his household, and he brought an end to their complaining and their rebellion, all that had aligned with him, and God removed that leaven from among his people as well. And needless to say, the sin of complaining caused them to become castaways, uh, disqualified in a very deep pit. I think that when Paul mentions this, it's interesting you read and you say, okay, idolatry, I'm with you there. And, uh, and lust, okay, I'm with you there. Sexual immorality, I'm with you there. And then you get down to complaining as a part of the same list. You say, wait a second, now you've gone from preaching to meddling as hitting too close to home. But it'll disqualify us. And the sting of this warning concerning complaining must have hit very, very close to home the many that were in the church at Corinth because many of them were big-time complainers, especially in their whisper campaign against the Apostle Paul. And the problem is, is that God always hears those whisper campaigns and he always hears the complaints. And so Paul tells us that all of these events, verse 11, were written for our instruction so that we do not follow the children of Israel, God's people, onto the same path of disqualification that they went on. It was written for our instruction, our admonition. Instruction concerning what? And here I think is the main point of the entire passage that it has always been the few among the all of God's people who run to win in their relationship with God. And it has always been the few among the all of God's people who do not end up a castaway concerning their Christian service and their kingdom influence, who do not end up in the course of their 
three score and ten becoming more interested in experiencing their liberties or sin than being faithful to God's call upon their lives to love God with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves, whether that neighbor be Christian or uh, non-Christian, and who do not say at some point, forget all of this, I'm going to live the life that I want to live. You think about how many Christians in the course of their life, again, they're three score and ten, that it begins, well, there's all the common experiences, all of the monumental events that occur within a church or within God's people in a particular generation and all, and then they comes to a place in their life where they say, I don't want to live this life anymore. I'm going to live the life that I want to live. I want to go to heaven. I want to be there for eternity, but I'm not interested in this anymore. I'm going to define my own Christianity. I'm going to reject the definition of Christianity from the mouth of Jesus and from the pages of Holy Scripture. I will fashion my own that allows me to partake of every liberty that I want and every sin that I want, no matter what Christian it stumbles, no matter how it affects my ability to reach the lost. In fact, I give up on the lost. Let everybody else try to reach the lost. And how many people, when the end of the life comes... And the Christian life is compared with the early weeks and months of their Christian life. How many people are able to look back at the end and say, what I have now is even greater than what I had then? And how many just say, I'm going to live the life I want And that's just too bad. Disqualification. A castaway. I don't doubt. I don't know. But I don't doubt concerning the body of Christ and Christians as a whole and the whole wide world that the overwhelming majority of them end up in exactly that place, however they may rationalize it or however we may state it. I am living this life on my terms. And the saddest thing of all is for a person to do that and not even to realize that In doing that, they have become disqualified and become a castaway. So all of that raises the final question that Paul intends to have raised and intends to answer. How in the world do we avoid becoming a castaway due to sin? And it gives us three things in this passage the first of which we've already examined. And the first thing is this, verses 6 through 10. We need to be ruthless concerning any and all sin in our lives. 
somebody has said that the ruthlessness the ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness with sin sin is ruthless very ruthless james said that no one say when he is tempted I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is drawn away when he is drawn, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And the first thing that it always does is it kills the intimacy of my personal relationship with God. That's always the first casualty. And then the second thing that it always does is it works to destroy the effectiveness of our service to God And then it can even result in our physical death. God says no to certain things because they're dangerous and they're not good for us. And when I take and I put myself in a place of disobeying those commandments, introducing sin, nurturing sin within my life, then I'm in something that God knows that can kill you and there's the possibility that it will kill you. The path of sin is a dangerous path, not only because we can end up becoming a casualty of sin, whether driving drunk or whatever the sin might be, but as we'll see a little bit later in chapter 11, some Christians in the church at Corinth have become so devoted to their sin above all else, above the health of the church, above all of the Christians that attended the church, and, and they, as a result of that, they were doing so much harm that God ultimately said, I can't trust you down there anymore. I am going to remove you and take you to heaven. And he killed them. He took them out. Ah, the death certificate said this, or it was this, or it was this, or it was this. But God said, I'm going to step in and Your influence is so bad, like with the children of Israel in the Old Testament, I am going to physically remove you so that you don't do any greater damage. Not talking about salvation or getting into heaven. And so we need to be ruthless concerning any sin in our lives. stopping to think about that. Everything's being redefined for our very eyes on a weekly basis the world that we live in. Everything. You look anywhere you want in life and you look at it and say, this is not, this is altogether new. This is an experiment. This is crazy. What in the world are we doing? That's going on everywhere in life right now. 
And Christianity is being redefined before our very eyes. And you know that you are succumbing to the new definition. And I exhort myself. If I can sit in a room like this and hear God speak to sin, deliberate sin in our lives, and the way that he does in this passage, and to not care one bit about it, but to walk out from this place and to continue in it. That is not a Christianity that God knows anything about. He did not send his son into this world to die on a cross to provide that to us, but something far greater than that. And I can yell, and I can scream, and I've done a lot of it through the years. But a soft answer maybe breaks a bone, as the proverb says. Do any of us sit here as Christians in this room this morning? No attempt to be dramatic, no attempt to be heavy, but just to in the realization of what the culture and even the Christian culture that is looking less and less like Jesus is telling us and we're settling for something else and we will end up a castaway because of it and disqualified. Number one, there needs to be ruthlessness concerning any sin in our lives. And then number two, he tells us in verse 12, We need to beware of pride. Nobody should look at that list of what the children of Israel fell prey to and fell and sniff at it and say, I'm glad that I'm not like other men. I would have, if I was in their shoes, I would have never done what they did. I've never fallen prey to that. I'm greater than that. I'm bigger than that. That doesn't have any hold or any, um, represents no temptation to me at all. That's the person that's in a dangerous place. That feeling that we don't need to be warned about these things because we could never, ever express our liberty so selfishly or we could never, ever fall prey to sins like that. And yet the fact of the matter is, concerning every single one of us as Christians, is that there's a long line of sins that has formed, which are eagerly desiring to make a castaway of us if we would give them the chance. And it's just a good, healthy dose of self-distrust in this area that keeps us sober and vigilant about temptation. Pride fills us with an overconfidence. Pride was the first sin of the devil. It was the first sin that was expressed in God's creation. And if devil can get us to be lifted up in pride and that kind of arrogance, then he just sets us up to be blindsided. When I hear people fall and they say, well, this person became a castaway, this person became disqualified, this and this and this and this, we just can never look at it and say, um, 
I'm glad that I would never do that, or I'm better than that, or they were just stupid idiots, or, you know, they were this or that, and put some great distance between myself and them. It should be humility and say, Lord, I don't ever want that to disqualify me, and if it did it with them in the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong circumstances, the wrong, the wrong, the wrong could happen to me, protect me from that. That's the attitude. And then third, he tells us in verse 13 that when we're tempted, we always need to look for the way of escape, that God is, will always be faithful to provide to us. He says there, no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, Yes, we need to be sober and vigilant related to sin, but Paul doesn't want uh, us to get paranoid by these examples either. He doesn't want us to end up thinking, well, boy, if the children of Israel couldn't stand after having all of those privileges, and what hope do I have of standing? And so falling is inevitable. Paul doesn't want them to think that because the inevitability of a fall is, uh, isn't necessary. And I want you to notice very briefly four things from this verse. Number one, he says, every temptation we face is common to man. I'm not to think that I'm unusual or extraordinary because I'm tempted. It is common to man. We are all tempted. Oh, no, you don't know my mom. You don't know Opie or Aunt B, you know, or whoever the equivalent is. Every one of us is tempted. You're not alone in it. You're not a freak. You're normal by virtue of being tempted. And somehow that's comforting to know. But at the same time, never ever look at the person who is living a strong, victorious Christian life and think they must be living that kind of life because they're not tempted the way that I'm tempted. If they had a strong of temptations operating in their life, they wouldn't be living that kind of life, victorious and holy and bold in faith and all. They'd be living the Christian life that I'm living. That's a self-deception, one that we're prone to. Strong temptation is common to all of us. We may not experience every temptation to sin to the same exact degree. Some people are more tempted in the area of sexual immorality than other people simply by virtue of the strength of their sex drive compared to somebody else. But that person who isn't as tempted in the area of sexual immorality as you might be, might have an even greater vulnerability than you have to drunkenness or to drug use or to pride or to gossip or to covetousness or to anxiety or to worry more than you do. But every single Christian is tempted by something that would disqualify them that is every bit as strong a temptation in their life as your strongest temptation is in your life. The second thing he tells us is that God is greater than any temptation we will ever face. That God is with us. 
And he is in us at every moment, including when we're being tempted. He's a very present help in time of need. He's right there. We can start to talk to him. Lord, look at this, what's going on right here. You see a knucklehead drive like that and all? I should pull over and wring his neck. What do you think about that, Lord? Uh, I think you're on the wrong track. You You can just start to talk with him about it. And then third, God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. If we're in the midst of a temptation or a trial and he doesn't provide a way of escape, it's because he knows that we can bear it. He knows that he has built a godly character in our lives and a history with him that we can face that temptation and he doesn't have to provide a way of escape. We can stand. We can stand in that place. Maybe we couldn't stand a year ago or five years ago or even six months ago, but he's done a lot in our lives since then. And in the past, he always gave us a way of escape out of that situation. Now he wants us to stand and to feel what it is like to flex the spiritual muscles that he has built into our lives and to stand in that place. He'll always give us either a way of escape or he'll give us the grace to stand in the face of that temptation. But when we're tempted beyond what we can bear, we do need to look for that way of escape because God will always provide one. We think about the Old Testament example. The greatest example would be probably uh, Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. Here she is. He's probably... 18, 19 years old, hormones like crazy, young, handsome. The Bible says he was handsome in terms of, of both his form and his muscles, his physique, his face. He was handsome, everything, the total package, the whole deal. She's got to be a knockout. Powerful men, both then and today, they don't marry ugly women. They marry beautiful women. I'm not saying that there are ugly women. I'm just saying they find a way to marry way, way, way above themselves in terms of what they are physically. And she grabs a hold of his robe and holds on to it and says, Lie with me. We're all alone. Nobody will know. He leaves his robe and he runs out of the palace. And sometimes the only escape is to just run. Or sometimes you can be watching something on television that's a little less than edifying. The Holy and the phone rings at that very moment to interrupt you, and you have to turn off the television. And as you're in the course of the conversation, your spirit you come back to your spiritual senses, and God has provided a way of escape. Before my wife became a Christian, um, she used to watch a soap opera called uh, "All My Children," and. Uh, so she becomes a Christian, she goes to women's Bible study, and she comes home and puts the girls down for a nap, and then she turns on all my children and going to have lunch. And she's just come now, brand new Christian, comes from the Bible study, and she thinks to herself, I don't know if I'm supposed to watch this. 
So she said to the Lord, Lord, if I'm not supposed to watch this, would you blow the television up or something? Like that. God, I don't know my wife. It's all one extreme or the other. You might just, there was a brand new television, by the way. She could have just said, like, could the knob break or the antenna go wrong? No, blow the whole television up. And so she prays that thing and immediately the screen goes blank. Got her answer. Way of escape. Or you're looking at something on the computer that you shouldn't be looking at and suddenly the computer freezes up on you. Or somebody walks into the cubicle and you know it's God interrupting you and giving you a way of escape. Or you get into a business deal and or a career decision that's going to take you very far away from God's call on your life. And it's all going so smoothly and then inexplicably all of these things start to go wrong and all kinds of complications. And then in the course of the delay of all of it, you realize you're making this decision without having sought God at all related to prayer, that it's the wrong decision and all of that has provided you with a way of escape. Or in a relationship with someone where it's getting pretty serious, you're dating and maybe engaged and all, and somehow God makes you aware of some character flaw or some area of hypocrisy in the other person's life that you weren't uh, aware of and that inconsistency in their life and then you end the relationship until it can be developed in the light. And God has all of these people look at it and say, these are just, you know, circumstances. These are just happen chance that this kind of stuff happens. No, God does these kind of things to provide us with a way of escape and to point us to the way of escape. God will provide us with a way out, but we need to recognize it for what it is and then to take the way out. Don't answer this question. I know I've got you a little bit long, but um, I'm still going to say this final thing, but I just want you to know I'm being sensitive to you. Don't raise your hand. Don't shout out. Have you ever fallen flat on your face? Sinned, messed up, messed up big. Messed up. And then from that vantage point, in all honesty between you and God, you're able to say, God, You warned me, and you warned me, and you warned me, and you warned me, and you gave me so many ways of escape that I ignored. Why do we feel that? Why do we have that revelation at that moment, except that it proves what Paul is saying here? that in every temptation there is a way of escape. If we'll but be alert to it and be willing to take it. I can say to you that if I ever fall into a sin that disqualifies me or makes me a castaway in terms of God's calling upon my life, I know for a fact that I would be forced to admit that he warned me and he warned me and he warned me and he warned me and he gave me a thousand opportunities to escape it and I did not heed him. And what is true of me is true of every single Christian and God's call upon 
our lives. It's always been the few among the all who run to win. It has always been the few among the all who do not ultimately become disqualified or cast away because of their liberties or because of their sin. And Paul tells us that we are to choose to run to win and to do so by putting away any sin in our life, be ruthless with sin, to be careful of pride, and then to look for and take the escape that God gives us in any temptation we find ourselves in. Good, practical, rubber meets the road instruction. Let's stand together and we'll pray.